What's happening? Welcome to Wong Notes Podcast. I am your host, Corey Wong. Today's show is a special one because we have one of the most incredible, prolific, and artistic film composers of our time, but he also happens to be somebody who was a rock star in the band Oingo Boingo. Today's guest is Danny Elfman. You read it on the link you clicked or whatever thing you pressed play on, you saw his name. So you know who my guest is. Now, if you don't know a lot about him, like I said, he was a rock star in the band Oingo Boingo, playing guitar, singing, writing songs, insanely huge and amazing band. And I mean, basically we could have ended it there and that could be it, but many people nowadays know him as the guy who wrote The Simpsons theme. He has a fun story about how he wrote that song in an afternoon. He wrote the scores for Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice, Batman, Edward Scissorhands, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Nightmare Before Christmas, and he even sang a lot of the songs. He's known as kind of just being the cat to do the scores for Tim Burton movies. And he talks about that relationship and sometimes complexities of a relationship like that in the interview. I was super excited about this. I am so enamored with the kinds of artists that can split their brains and do those sort of things. Movies, the band and and rock star career, and then also find a way to blend those together. I feel like he was one of the leading people in his generation to really kind of set that sort of blueprint for a career uh, for many artists. Like, you know, nowadays you see Trent Reznor, John Batiste, a lot of people doing this sort of thing where they have their band or their own solo career, but then they also, I guess, moonlight. <laughs> it's probably not the right word for it, but they also have this other gig being film composers. Super cool thing. I got a lot out of this interview, so Danny Elfman. You guys hit the distro kid yet? It is the easiest, fastest, and cheapest way to get your music onto streaming services like Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, pretty much anywhere else that people consume music. You can get an account starting at $19.99 per year. Per year, you get unlimited uploads and you keep 100% of your earnings. 100%. So for somebody like me, I put out I put out a lot of albums last year. It was still just one annual price, no matter how many albums I have up. And I keep 100% of the earnings that come in. There's a lot of reasons I love DistroKid, but the ones I want to highlight here are the Teams feature. So basically, I can assign a percentage of royalties to go to any of my collaborators, however we work it out. Or my managers work with their managers and we work out, you know, whatever percentage split. My percentage goes to me and then DistroKid gives the other percentage to the other collaborator or artist. It works amazing. And neither one of us as artists needs to handle the accounting. DistroKid just does it for us. Set! If you'd like to give them a try, use my VIP link to get 30% off your first year of DistroKid membership. DistroKid.com slash VIP slash Corey Wong. There it is. Let's get to the episode. Uh, Well, Danny, thank you so much for joining us. It is really a treat to have you on. You are a very special musician and have a lot of history and wisdom that I am very curious about. So I have lots of questions for you today. Okay. Well, I've got lots of history and very little wisdom, but I'll do the best I can. (laughs) Well, I want to start by acknowledging you are in today's 
zeitgeist most known as a film composer, but also you had an entire career as a part of Oingo Boingo. And I saw a video in particular that really opened my eyes up to you as a performer that I hadn't seen before. Oingo Boingo live at Us Fest. There's a version oh God, of Goodbye, yeah. Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> and I had not realized how much of a front man you were and, and just such an entertaining live entity. I'm curious if in what you do now, if you ever miss that side of it. Wow. That's a only as of this year is that a really complicated question because for the last 35 years if, if you'd asked me i'd have gone nope don't miss it <laughs> <laughs> and i loved being in a band and i loved performing and i really loved the audience and particularly i loved the smaller shows i mean i really loved it being in the clubs my my favorite shows were at the whiskey and the roxy in los angeles when you're close to the audience i love the the grit of it and the sweat of it and then, you know, the show started getting bigger and it was still really exciting and stuff. But I always missed that kind of contact, that close contact. And uh, there was there was always a point where I, I would jump out into the audience and like jump out in the crowd. And I loved the mosh pits and the energy of it. And then after almost getting killed <laughs> in a mosh pit, <laughs> that kind of stopped that, which was sad because I, I missed it. You know, I'd always come yeah. back on stage and like as I'm working through the crowd a bunch of guys are always going to grab my t-shirt and like everything's going to get ripped off and i i sometimes would have like nail marks on my back <laughs> you know some bloody <laughs> finger marks and i said ah fuck it what do i care i don't care you know that's cool but one night i'm on a bunch of hands being passed around and two guys get two halves of my shirt and yank it and it goes up in a twisted ball around my neck and Ooh. there's these two beefy guys pulling in two different directions and i'm passing out i'm realizing and I remember my thoughts being, what a stupid way to die. <laughs> Is this oh, going to be man. it? Like strangled in a mosh pit at his own concert? No, it can't be that. You know, I, I mean, this is not how I'm going. <laughs> there's a million ways to die, but this is like the dumbest. And um, it snapped and I got free and I had this big red gash around my neck. But from that point on, Laura, my stage manager at that time she was like i'm never letting you do that again i will physically block you from doing that you just can't and it's like oh yeah right all right all right whatever so do i miss it did i miss that yeah on the other hand for the last quarter century i didn't miss being in a band because i i always had stage fright and uh i didn't miss like not getting out the, the anxiety of being on stage and and being pure writing so it's weird. I was like, okay, that was cool. 17 years of that. That's good. Now I'm composing. And then 2020 rolls around. And for many years, uh, we'd been asked to do Coachella. And um, I always said, no, 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 no. You know, it's like a Boingo reunion. I said, there's never going to be an Oingo Boingo reunion. I just, I don't believe in reunions. And to be honest, as much as I loved playing with them, I, I was very frustrated being in a band. I realized at a certain point that I wasn't cut out for life in a band where you have to tour all year. I didn't like touring. Not that I didn't like the performing in other cities, but I didn't like doing the same songs every night. It, it just started to get to me. And weird psychological shit. Like, I would start blanking out on songs, which I still i am really bad with that. I blank out. But the songs I was most likely to blank out on were the ones I knew the best. Huh. So not the new song for the new album. It would be like... The songs from the first album. 
Sure. Uh, those would be the ones I just go blank on. And it's like, God damn. It's like, what is this shit? So I gave it up. But Coachella thing with Oingo Boingo is not going to happen. And then they said, well, why don't you come do an orchestral show? You know, like Hans Zimmer did uh, a couple of years ago. And I said, yeah, that's not really me either, because that involves a lot of pre-recorded music because you can't really bring an orchestra out on stage in Coachella in a rock concert and mic them and set them up. You need to ha have a lot of and sound proper yeah. help. And that just felt wrong to me. When, when I do an orchestral show, um, which I started doing with Elfman Burton and Nightmare Before Christmas, the excitement of those shows is that you're with a different orchestra every night and they got to learn yeah. that motherfucker from the beginning. And yeah. <laughs> um, it's like it, it becomes the excitement of theater where yeah. you're doing a show and it reminds me of like the old days when you're doing a theater show and you don't know if you're going to pull it off or not. And you may f it may fail, but that chance of failure is exactly what makes theater so riveting and exciting. Yes. And um, that's why when I'm in live theater and, you're, and uh, watching performers perform, they're doing a big monologue and you're going, God, I hope this actor gets through this thing. And if they do, you're rooting for them. And if they fumble, you're rooting for them mm, to get mm -hmm. back on their feet. You know, I, I love that sense of the unknown and the orchestral dates, you know, which we've done all around the world or like that. It's like I, I can remember so many dress rehearsals where – it's like, God, we needed another day or two days of rehearsal to really learn this thing. I don't think they're going to pull it off. And yet somehow they do. And I, that's great. That's, this, that's that live thing, that unknown. And so I flew out there to see what Coachella was all about. And I saw all the video monitors on the side. And I saw how great video projection has gotten in the last quarter century. And I started getting excited. And I went to Paul, the promoter, and I said, how about a show that's half and half where I bring a small orchestra on and I do some of my film music, but then I also go back and do reworked Oingo Boingo songs. And I have these two songs I'd written for Dark Mofo, two new things that nobody's ever heard. And that- Chamber punk. <laughs> chamber punk. That became exciting. So now it's like, yeah. okay. He says, yeah, that's a great idea. I love it. So we spent three months putting together this really- crazy show i mean i was putting together visuals i was so excited by the visuals that we were really putting together all this stuff for the side screens to to accompany it and that and then the pleasure of starting with a song that nobody's ever heard and my manager is saying by the way it's the same laura that pulled me out of the pit that first time back in the uh, early <laughs> 80s it's still yeah. my agent now uh like 40 years later and she's like Danny, you, you can't open with that song. It's like a crazy song. It's like you don't even sing for a minute and a half and you open with an Oingo Boingo song, then do some film stuff, then do like, you know, do the, the Simpsons, do something, and then do your new. And I go, no, nope. <laughs> this is how I'm starting the show. This is why I'm doing the fucking show. It's yeah. like, I want to see their faces mm -hmm. when I start something that they go, oh my God, what is this? And um, literally just weeks before the show, as you well know, Everything yeah. got turned upside down. So what happened is that got the bug now in the back of my brain because I was rehearsing and I had this great little band and we were just at the point where it's like, these things are sounding good. I was really like enthused by the energy of this band that we're just learning stuff for the first time. So I came out of that really depressed for a month. I just didn't do anything. 
And then I started working on an orchestral commission because I had two orchestral commissions lined up. And I said, well, I'll start working on those. And I started writing some orchestral music. And then I kept finding myself thinking, what about this riff here? What if I, next thing I know, it's like, well, you know, I'll write a couple more songs because if I have two songs, I might as well come up with six more. Then I've got an album. Yeah. Okay. I'll spend a couple of months. I'll, I'll do that. Now, this is uh, April, yeah, April 2020. Cut to August, and I'm like, oh, my God, I've got so many songs. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is crazy. It's like, i got to stop. And I realize I'm not used to not having a uh, deadline. You know, everything I do is on deadlines. So there's no deadline on this. Nobody knows I'm doing it. I don't have a label. I don't have anything. So it's like, I'm just, so at a certain point, I'm going, all right, this is crazy. i got to stop. Hmm. And, um, and I started marketing. And here I was from scratch. Uh, playing songs for record labels. And I, I said, this is exciting. I haven't done this in a gazillion years. And I'm really going to be fucking with people's heads because, and, and by the way, I recorded everything in this little room that you're seeing here right now. This is not a studio. It's a writing room that I do for orchestral. And um, I have one guitar, this one microphone that I'm in now, Actually, two guitars, one acoustic, one electric, and a microphone. I didn't even have a functioning pair of headphones. I actually did the whole album in here. And I realized, because I have a beautiful studio in Los Angeles, and it's got so many great guitars and toys and gadgets, but, you know, it was the pandemic. I'm here. And I just started doing demos. Before I knew it, I've got my guitar out, and, um, you know, I have my Axe effects that I use for my guitar, and I'm getting sounds that I'm liking. And I said, oh, I got to get a windscreen. <laughs> and so, all right, I got a windscreen for my mic. I'm in business. Yeah. <laughs> I got a guitar, electric guitar. I got a windscreen. And uh, off I go. You're set. I'm set. So now here I am in like uh, August, September, or I, I guess around August, and I'm starting to play for record labels. And it's like, this is crazy. They're all like, oh, yeah, Danny Elfman, has got some new stuff. We'd love to hear it. And Laura's warning them, says, it's not Oingo Boingo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, yeah, yeah, we understand. No, you don't understand. <laughs> it's not whatever it is. It's, and I go, whatever it is, they're, it's not going to be what they're expecting. Mm -hmm. And it was really fun because I got this perverse pleasure out of <laughs> playing for people. And, and it was really difficult. As you could imagine, I'd have to say, okay, two people can come from the label. Yeah. We all isolate for a week we all get tested we all come in with our results and we sit in four parts of the room you know yep. with masks on it was a lot of work for each sure. presentation but i'm looking at a lot of really confused faces <laughs> as i'm playing stuff and um i would always purposely lead with the song called sorry which was the first song i wrote for this uh big mess project well, it's now called the big mess and if you go and look uh on youtube for sorry you know it, it's what we released already as a single in, in January. And if you hear that song, you'll understand. It's like, that's what I wanted to lead out in mm -hmm. Coachella. And when I did record people, it's like, no, no, don't lead with the cat. Let's lead with this. Yeah. And if this fucks them up, if this throws them off, then so be it. And if it doesn't, then they're the ones I want to talk to. Yeah. I ended up with 18 songs. Wow. Uh, before I finally forced myself to stop and um, I played for all these labels, and uh, Andy came in from Anti Records, mm -hmm. and he was the first one when I played Sorry, and I, I'd sit there and play for him, I'm watching him, and he gets up, and he like, 
<laughs> he starts applauding. <laughs> and it's like he talks about the song for 10 minutes, like what it meant for him. And I'm going, all right, I'm talking with the right yeah. guy here. And then I played the rest of it. Very enthusiastic. And then he brought in his partner, uh, Brett, who uh, runs Epitaph. Because mm-hmm. Anti and Epitaph are sister labels. Yep. And Brett listened and he felt the same way. And I said, okay, these guys, you know, it's a little label, but they understand the music. They get it. And that's where I felt comfortable. I'd rather be with a small group that yeah. really is into it than a bigger group where I know that if you just put this album out on its own, it'll just disappear. It's so fucking not of today. Sure. Contrary to everything and anything that's selling out there <laughs> that it's really going to take, you know, some inventive marketing and handling to try to get it into the consciousness of the public to a guy who's unknown to most people as a rock artist. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's fine. That's exciting. And uh, so we started making videos and uh, since I can't perform. And that's still the frustrating part is I want to get up there and perform this stuff. Yeah. And can't yet. And then, of course, Coachella canceled again. Yeah. For, you know, this April. And then, I mean, I know there's talk about it happening in October, but mm-hmm. I don't know if that's already been dissolved or gone away or not or what's happening with that but it's it's a fucking performer nightmare yeah and of all the people i know i mean the performers are just dying ready to kill themselves you know because if you're a performer it's horrible it's death you know it's like there's nothing worse for fortunately for those of us that are writers we just dig in yeah and uh i was talking with the a composer, a friend that I like named Marco Beltrami. We were comparing notes and he did an amazing project of his own take on Bach variations, preludes, mm. but through his own lens and uh, wrote and performed them. And And I created the Big Mess double album and we were both saying, I like these things just kind of wouldn't happen. So it, it's been a mixed blessing for writers who are used to living in isolation and forced into deeper isolation and then forced to just create. Yep. Then for those of us that are performers, you know, and I got it on both ends. So I literally did not take any films for 2020 because I had performances booked all year. I had a commission for the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain uh, that was to play at the proms in August. I had my premiere of my violin concerto playing in London in uh, April, I had a uh, percussion concerto that was supposed to premiere towards the end of the year. I had all this work and Elfman Burton shows and Nightmare Before Christmas shows. So I had like, like 25, 30 concerts. And um, I said, you know what? I'm just not going to take film work right now. I'm just going to make it a concert year. Yeah. And uh, it all imploded, of course. So I definitely got nailed. And I know how disappointing it is to feel nailed. I mean, I was so looking forward to the, that concerto playing in London. Yeah, the, like I bet. Uh, and so looking forward to these concertos and getting out there with some of the big mess yeah. songs from Coachella and performing some of that live. It was just very exciting. So I got slammed big, but I was able to focus it, all this frustration into this microphone. Yeah. And uh, turned it into something for better or for worse. And, yeah. you know, if it ends up at the end of the day, it's a, everybody hates it, then I'll just go, all right, well, whatever, you know. There are different levels of control that you have as an artist and as a creative person. In what things are you willing to relinquish control 
And what things do you absolutely have to have the final say in? Well, I mean, I'm kind of obsessive OCD about everything. So I am hands-on with everything. You know, my orchestral, because mm-hmm. I've done over 100 scores now, and uh, my mixers are used to sharing faders with me, um, which most yeah. composers don't do. But because that was my upbringing, that's just the only way I know how to work. So what they'll do is they'll get the, the, the big orchestral piece, they'll get it set up so it's in perspective, and then they'll turn it over to me to ride. Yeah. It depends on the piece, but sometimes it's solos, sometimes it's certain sections or divisi of a piece, sometimes it's the electronics and percussion that I've laid in myself, um, and I want to mix that myself. So the hard part about this project is that most of my mixing was done over audio movers long distance. And that was hard. It's the first time in my life ever that I've mixed anything without having hands-on faders. So, I mean, most people would assume that, oh, after I left Oingo Boingo and got into film music, that I was, you know, just approving mixes orchestrally, which is more the traditional thing to do. But they don't realize that I can't not get my fingers on the fuckers. It's just how I work. And so uh, that was really challenging. You know, I found myself with an engineer in New York. I mean, it didn't matter if it was in North Hollywood, uh, Cincinnati, or New York. It was the same thing. Yeah. It's like, I'm not there. And yeah. I'm saying, I'm looking for this a guitar part, this one here. No, no, not that one. Keep looking. No, not that one. Uh, that, yeah, okay, that yeah. one. We want to bring that up 2 dB between here and here. It was challenging. Yeah. And also for the recording, we couldn't all get in the room at the same time. Sure. And and that was very challenging. You know, for the rehearsals, it was so great. We were all at my studio and Josh Fries, the drummer, was in the middle of everything. And uh, we were all kind of set up around him. And it was so much, it was such a great energy in the room. And now it's like, once again, we all had to like isolate, test. So Josh would come in and he'd play the drum parts for the week. Then Stu Brooks do the same thing. He'd yeah. get his turn, come in, lay in the bases. Then Neely Brosh, her turn, Robin Fink his turn, you know, one at a time. And uh, it worked out. It was fine because, I mean, this, my songs, I laid them out pretty well. You know, it's not the kind of songs that are too improvisational. Yeah. Fortunately. Is that because of your, the last several years doing so much in film, you're used to everybody just playing exactly what you put on the paper? No, it really just has to do with the fact that, you know, I knew that I was going to be selling songs sure. uh, from scratch. So I had to create demos that really sold the song. In other words, it couldn't be a rough approximation of the song. It really had to be the song. So I I played every guitar part and um, really took time to lay it in and try my best to get, you know, mixes and parts that felt like it was a an entity. Because, you know, if you're in a band, uh, you come in with a rougher idea and then with the band, you work it out and get all the parts and uh, it's just a different process, but I didn't have that luxury. So I just had to do it all myself. Yeah. So it just it was dictated by the world that yep. I was in. I heard, so you're talking about mixing. I heard that there's one one score in particular that you were not necessarily happy about the mix. And you could settle this for me if it, is, if it isn't true, but the Batman score... Uh, oh, wait, wait, wait. There's, there's two different words. To, the word mix has two different meanings. So let me put that in perspective. Mm-hmm. First, there's the mix of the music yep. that you do on tape. And I was, I was reasonably happy with the mix. You know, in a score like Batman, which was only my 10th score, and on those early scores, you couldn't do a lot of mixing 
in the orchestra because it was all recorded live. You know, now we record things sectionally. We record more likely the strings, sometimes even the strings in several passes, the brass and the woodwinds, and directors want to have control of the sections. So I'm actually spending a lot more time mixing. But uh, for Pee Wee's Big Adventure and Beetlejuice and Batman, I didn't know much about how to record orchestra, and there was no time. So it was pretty much live. So, but the mix of Batman, I thought was okay. Uh, there were certain things when I listened back later, it's like, I wished I could have turned some cymbal crashes down and yeah. things like that, which you can't because they're in every mic in the room yeah. played live. But, um, and that's when I learned, don't ever record your percussion live. That's why it's like, do it as an overdub. So you can, can let the player really crash those things and, uh, don't worry about it. But the second mix is the mix into the movie. And so that's, what I would call the dub. So what you're saying by a mix I wasn't happy with is really the dub. Sure. Okay. And I was terribly unhappy with the dub on Batman. They did it very... Uh, at that point in 1987, 8, 9, early 80s, they're still kind of going in the old school way of like, you know, you do the score, you turn it in, the guys the, turn it down at the professionals, turn the knobs and and dub it in and... Dubbing had gotten real wonky in those years. And uh, we recorded uh, three channels, right, center, left. Mm -hmm. uh, That's film, stereo. And basically, they took the center channel out of the music completely and just sent it right and left. So they turned the three channels that we'd given them into two just to leave more room for the sound effects and make it easier. So it was just dealt with like, eh, you know, and we got the sound effects and we have the music. It had that didn't have any care put into it to make it like uh, and so when i sat in the theater for the opening and again i had very little experience with with dubs and i was starting to learn that you know some dubs are good and some dubs are really bad you know with the music i mean i've had many big big scores play in action scenes that really propelled the scenes and in the end in the dub i realized i could have had the orchestra play anything you know i could have really scored the film with some percussion and a harmonica and a banjo because you know all you really hear is like some percussion hits and things and big moments but you can't hear what the orchestra is doing i I was unhappy with the dub on batman yeah so yeah that was like my first kind of lesson in how so-called professionals can take a score and a soundtrack to a movie and just do their thing in a very non-committal way that just is easiest for them, you know, plunk it off to the sides and then just get the dialogues. You know, a lot of mixers are really like that, where they're really just mixing the dialogue. Oh, and then the music's there. Yeah, so that was part of my question with the relinquishing control is if you like to now be a part of that process or now you just find people that you trust or you say, look, I want approval over this in the end. No, I I don't get any approval and I don't get to be a part of the process. Even after 105 scores, you know, <laughs> on occasion, I'm invited in to listen to a dub and give notes. Yeah. And I try to keep my notes really simple and just go for like, I, I may listen to a dub and I might have 50 or 60 notes in my head, but I'm only going to tell them seven of them. Yeah. Because there's a certain point where you start like laying it on and you're just going to lose them. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah okay. It's like pick your battles. being picky. You pick your battles. So I go for like the biggest moments yeah. and try to present it in a way that's very lucid. And, you know, and then if they're good dubbers, they'll listen to that and take it into account. But that, that's the exception to the rule. It's still hit or miss completely. And um, 
the issue these days is not so much that the music gets just dumped off for dialogue. It's really sound effects. Um, on the bigger films, sound effects still rule in the theater and, and the music is just there. And I remember my engineer, I had an engineer uh, who was uh, invited to be one of the dubbing crew of three, you know, sound, music and effects. And he told me the story. I won't say which engineer on which film, but, you know, he's, you got the lead mixer doing the dialogue, then you got the effects and the sound. And they spent hours and hours and hours going over this scene, getting the dialogue and the effects and the dialogue and the effects and the dialogue and the effects. And after like four hours of this, they said, okay, go ahead and do your thing to the, my engineer, the music guy. And he does a single pass and he starts to get it in order. And he goes, okay, next. And he goes, oh, whoa, 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 wait a minute. That was just my first pass. Can I, I'd like to try yeah. to give a little Oh God. All right. <laughs> and he said, that set the tone for the film. Yeah. It's like to a lot of them, the sound effects, I understand this. It's so much fun. You got a ton of shit and you can place it all over the place and you can make things go right to left and you can have explosions. You got your subwoofers, you got your uh, surrounds behind you. Yeah. And it's like a game. It's like so much fun. You're putting yeah. stuff everywhere. Oh, and then we got the music. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And it's like, just put it here and here. But it's not always the case. And, uh, you got directors out there that are very much into music and uh, they're just, you know, those directors. It's like, oh my God, I hear dubs every now and then. It's like, I'd have killed for that dub. <laughs> Literally, who do I have to kill to get this dub? But, uh, you know, it, it really has to do so much with the director because ultimately everybody is going to do what the director wishes. And sometimes the directors are passive, you know, and the mixers will mix and the director will hear everything in a perspective that seems fine, but it's not like they ever have the opportunity to put on another film with a dub they loved and hear the difference. Yeah. You know, when I'm mixing a record, my ears adjust to the mix. If I mix for two, three hours, it's like suddenly it's like, okay, you know, it's like it's all feeling a perspective. I might put on another record and go, oh my God, listen to the bass. <laughs> Where's our bass? You know, and you just, you don't realize the fact that it's disappeared. Uh, until you hear another reference. Now, in a movie, you can't do that. They can't take the whole setup down on a dubbing stage and run another film for the director to go, wait a minute, that sounds so good. Can't we do that? Uh, they're in the context of the world that's they've created and everything starts to feel correct. I don't think any director ever wants to do a bad dub. But I think that, you know, often... It's just this is the world that's created for them. And they're trying to hear everything. They're trying to hear the – of course you have to hear the dialogue. And, you know, they're they're been working on effects for months and months. And then there's the music. And they're really trying to keep it all present. But they just may not have the skills to really – I think the, the, the scores where the music really blazes, you have a director that is going, no, do it again. Take it up. No, do it again. And the dubbing engineers are going, okay, boss, you know, it's yeah. like, uh, it's your funeral. And, it's, and the director goes, yeah, it's my funeral. Fuck you. <laughs> and they do it. And I sit there in the theater and going, oh, this sounds so great. Every film's its own animal. Every dubbing crew are their own animals. I think most of the good dubbing crews, their hearts are in the right place and they're trying to do well. But ultimately, it's the director who's saying, yes, no, bring that up, bring that up, bring that down, bring that up. And, and everybody, all of us, them, me, we are there to serve the needs of the director. So, you know, sometimes I come out of a, a film going, eh, it was a really mediocre dub, but I know that that crew 
is really capable of doing really good stuff because, you know, that's the same crew that did this movie or this movie. And so I don't hold it against anybody personally. It's not like that Batman story where I thought, you know, the guy just like wanted to make it easy and stuck it right and left. You know, these guys really work hard and they, they do their best. Ultimately, the, the real responsibility lies with the director. And sometimes directors have amazing ears and sometimes they don't. So you can pin it on one person in the end. It's the director. Well, in, in the end, but that person, remember, that's not their job. Yeah, exactly. Is to take incredibly dense sonic landscape and sort yeah. it out. Yeah. You know, they're just like listening and doing the best they can. So it's not like, it's really complicated. And everybody's desire is to do a good job. And so um, I, I think most of the time, I, I really do think nine out of 10 times, you know, and, and sometimes I come out of a dub and I'll see the lead dubber engineer and he comes up to me and I think, oh, such an awful dub. And he comes up to me, he goes, Danny, didn't you love that? We worked so hard. And I go, yeah, you did a great job. I, I don't, there's no reason <laughs> to say I really didn't like it because I know he worked really hard on it. And it's just the way all these hundreds of elements came together you know, left me disappointed. But it's not his fault. It's not like, there's no villain in the picture. There's just a really complicated process, which occasionally lends itself to the music expressing itself really well and and very often doesn't. And everybody has their own taste and instincts. Honing somebody's instincts. So people have heard this story if they've read things about you or whatever. So I'll spare you from telling the story again. And uh, I, I have a question about instincts after this. But One of your most famous pieces of music is the theme for The Simpsons. As the story goes, as the legend goes, you watched some early animations, visuals for it. You were driving home. The theme came to you. You recorded it. You had it. It was all basically written in a day. Is that basically the gist of the story? We don't have to go into this. No, that's absolutely dead on correct. Uh, it was a rare moment because usually, you know, a- a- most everything comes with a struggle. Yeah. Um, and occasionally they don't. <laughs> yeah. And literally, I came out of the meeting with Matt Groening and uh, he it was a pencil, a pencil sketch version of the opening. But you could see the whole movement of the opening. And we basically had a brief conversation. And I said, this energy, it feels like a crazy 60s, like, you know, I grew up on the Flintstones yeah. and, and that whole kind of thing. And maybe because they were driving the car, it kind of reminded me of the, you know, the Flintstones, but he's you know, running with his feet in the car and that whole thing. And I said, if you want something kind of crazy and retro, I'm the guy. If you want something contemporary, I, I just don't see it for this. And uh, he goes, no, crazy retro sounds cool. And I got in the car and it's absolutely correct. I had my Sony tape recorder with me and I never went anywhere without that thing. Um, because I had a really bad history of all my best ideas hitting me, either when I'm in the car or on a plane <laughs> yeah. or at the most inconvenient moment. And uh, I was able to like just like drive and like do notes, 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 notes. So I got home. I didn't want to hear any other music. I couldn't dare turn on a radio. And I ran down to my studio, and I spent about two hours, and I made a, a demo. And uh, maybe it was three hours. I don't remember. But it was really quick. By the next day, there was a cassette to send over to them. And um, I, they listened, called me back, said, yeah, we're in. And a week later, we recorded it. Now, first off, I didn't expect anybody would ever hear that theme to The Simpsons. It was totally for fun. It was just for my own pleasure. Because when I saw 
what they were doing with The Simpsons. I said, no, this show will never survive, but I don't care. It's really great. So it'll get, you know, a couple of episodes and it'll be a cult thing or whatever. And I didn't care. You know, it's like I didn't expect it to ever be heard. I didn't expect that if I die right now and um, have a grave somewhere, they'd probably put that on my gravestone. (laughs) Yeah. Duh. He wrote the Simpsons theme. Um, You know, it's like, who would ever know? But there are moments in the last 35 years where things have come easily. Yeah. And uh, those moments are by far the exception. Yeah. They do happen. And thank God they happen occasionally. There's like the reminder of, you know, sometimes it just comes. And I think sometimes people write that off as, oh, there was just this spark of inspiration. But for me, I want to know your interpretation of what it means to have good instincts and what it means to be able to hone your instincts. Because I, I, do, I do really believe that you can sometimes watch something or you'll hear a song and you just know exactly what to do because your life's work and experience has led you to this moment and you're present in the moment, you're paying attention, you've seen similar things, you're understanding their references and... It just kind of snaps and you get it. I think that that's possible and that, that is something that you can hone and work on so that happens more. Well, that's a tough one because you always want to hone your instincts and try to improve them. But that doesn't mean that in every situation those instincts are going to lead you to the right answer with the first try. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if I look at just my work with Tim Burton... For example, Pee-wee's Big Adventure was like The Simpsons. I mean, I literally, I heard it in my head after I met with Tim and he showed me uh, scenes from the movie. I had that theme in my head. And like The Simpsons, I went home and I did it the same day in a four-track tape player. I just recorded all the parts and sent it to them. But Batman was much more difficult. I started with a series of improvisations and things that I, I thought were really good, but it wasn't what became the Batman theme. That really evolved over the course of a period of time. And it really didn't clarify for me until I actually flew out to England and I walked on the uh, Gotham City set and I saw some scenes that he'd actually shot. And then I started hearing, okay, now I think I'm understanding it. And of course, in this case, it hit me on a airplane coming home from England again at the worst possible time, which is another crazy story because once again, I had my Sony tape player and at this time I wasn't in my car, so I couldn't start just making crazy random notes with my voice uh, because there was a guy sitting next to me in the seat and, you know, I just, it would seem too crazy. So I kept running into the bathroom over and over and over (laughs) again. And in a 747, those bathrooms are loud. Uh, You hear a lot of jet roar. And every time I came out of the bathroom, there were more concerned flight attendants looking at me. <laughs> Sir, are you okay? I'm fine. I'm fine. fine. Yeah? Uh, you're feeling okay. Are you sick? No. Oh, I'm not sick at all. And I know that they're thinking, what kind of drugs could he possibly be running in there and doing so frequently? Because I was running in there about every 10, 15 minutes. By the end, every attendant, everybody on the plane that worked on the plane was watching me really closely. Because it's like something's up. You know, when somebody goes running into the bathroom every 10 or 15 minutes, it's, they look sick when they're coming out. They're throwing up or whatever, you know. And it's like, I'm coming out and I'm all excited. <laughs> I'm all like happy and excited. Ah, they're great. And it's like, then they're thinking, well, cocaine. But you can't snort coke that much. 
You didn't just think so, to tell him what you were doing? No. Nah, there's no way to explain. I, I'm doing voice notes in the bathroom for a score for a, a Batman movie in England. It's like, it's just like, what the fuck are you talking about? Now we got a maniac on the plane. I, it was just better. I thought it was just better just to go, no, no, I'm good. I'm good. And I'd go back to my seat. It's, it's too, it was too much of an explanation. It's like, why are you running into the bathroom and locking the door to do your, do these notes? Right. All right, all right. At the beginning of the episode, you heard me talking about DistroKid. I'm going to mention him again because it's worth it to me. I really think that if you are an artist, you should have an easy and comfortable way to upload your music and get it distributed to all the streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, YouTube Music, blah, 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 all that stuff. You should have a way to do that. DistroKid makes it really easy. And also, they don't take a percentage. They do not take a percentage of your royalties. That's amazing. All they do is charge a yearly fee. I love it. I use it. If you're making your own music and want to put it out there in the world, I would suggest using DistroKid. That's that. Easy as that. Let's get back to the interview. So there's been some interesting duos of composers and directors in history. And one that kind of that reminds me of you and all of your work with Tim Burton is Bernard Herrmann and Alfred Hitchcock. And well, that was the, the great inspiration for, for me, certainly, yeah. was so, just that. That film score, Psycho, which by the, we'll get to that in a second, but the fun thing about that one is I have a bandmate in the band Wolfpack, Joe Dart, the bass player. His grandpa is Izzy Baker, the first violinist on that score. Oh, my which God. Is, which is a really a, fun, uh, crazy thing. Two degrees of separation there, you know? Yeah, it's insane. But... That combo of those two really definitely, it, it totally reminds me of you and Tim Burton, not even just for the simple fact of some of the tone and some of the types of thematic ideas in the score and in the directing, but you know that sort of chemistry and that sort of seemingly unified vision. Is there a way, I, I, like that, that sort of iconic duo sort of thing? Did you guys set out for that from the beginning or did it just feel like after the first movie, you just had it? You know, I don't think anybody sets out to create a, a dynamic relationship with a, a director. I don't think, I'm not sure how Bernard Herrmann felt after his first film with Alfred Hitchcock. I think it really just comes down to a director might feel that a composer understands their aesthetic and they have another film and they'll say, hey, you want to do that one too? And as it's happened so famously, the most famous relationship, you know, which would be Spielberg and Sean Williams. So I think at a certain point, Spielberg would just go, he gets it. I just want to keep using him. Very famously with uh, Alan Silvestri and Robert Zemeckis, Carter Burwell and the Coen brothers. Um, you know, there's a lot of relationships like this where they go many, many years. It's just the kind of that unchartable thing called chemistry. And uh, but for me, I never really know or knew that uh, Tim was going to call again. You know, Tim's a very unique and unpredictable guy. And that's an understatement. Every time it would just be like, all right, that that went well. It's like and then. You know, a year, year and a half later, it's like suddenly I'll get another call. It's like, hey, you want to do, I got a, a thing here. I say, like, sure, yeah. But I don't take that for granted. What's 
weird is that, you know, Tim and I, after a certain number of films, you know, we kind of would joke that, God, you know, we're going to end up like Bernard Herrmann and Alfred Hitchcock, who famously uh, ended up terribly, you know, on Torn Curtain. Uh, they had a split from which they never recovered. And uh, it was sad for all of us film goers that ended their career together. And that happened to us at the end of uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. And it was like, I'll never work with Tim again. And, you know, we had this big split and it's like, God, we did end up like them. And I think at a certain point, it's inevitable with personalities like ours. We're both very kind of peculiar people and maybe volatile in our own ways and emotional about stuff. And, uh, you know, it's now it's easy to see at a certain point how you can get derailed and, you know, go nuclear over something that really perhaps shouldn't have been nuclear. Fortunately for me, at the end of a year of not working, I felt really bad about it. I, I'd wished it didn't happen. I felt like I lost kind of like a brother, um, like a relative, you know, where you have a huge, huge fight, but there's still your, your blood, your, and you miss them. And, uh, I guess, you know, Tim was working on Mars attacks and, uh, he had another composer and the story I heard is that he and the producer were in a hotel room and they were watching Batman returns that just happened to be on. And Tim said to the producer, he goes, Danny should be doing this. Shouldn't he? And the producer said, yes. And my agent got a call say, would Danny ever consider working with Tim again? And I was on a plane the next day. <laughs> so, and we got another 15 years out of our. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's, what's interesting about uh, Nightmare Before Christmas being one of those ones that split up for you. I'm, I'm curious about this is, so with that one, you wrote a lot of songs for it. That one, it feels like there's a lot more, and you're a, you're a vocalist a lead vocalist on a lot of that material. I'm wondering, you know, in, in most movies, you're writing themes for characters, for other characters. In this particular one, it maybe feels a little more of you in the character. Is that what may, is, were you just more invested in the songs and the music portion of that film? Yeah, I think that has a lot to do with it. First off, you know, usually when I'm on a score, it's roughly three months. It could be as little as five or six weeks or as many as 14 or 16 weeks. But, you know, 12 to 16 months is normal. Uh, weeks, rather, 12 to 16 weeks. On Nightmare, I was on that film for two years. And it's just a whole different animal. I was there from the inception of it. And I did write the songs, because we didn't even know how many songs we were going to have. We, Tim and I were just inventing this from scratch. There was no guidebook on how to create a musical. All we knew is what we didn't want it to sound like. We didn't want it to sound like a Disney musical of the era, and we didn't want it to sound like it came off a Broadway stage. So it's easy to know what you don't want to do. It's very difficult to know then what is it. Mm. And we had no script. Um, Tim had a story outline and he had yeah. these beautiful drawings, but Henry was setting up his studio uh, in Oakland, but there was still no script. And we decided we'd start with the songs. So as I was writing the songs, Tim is telling me the story about Jack and what's happening to him. Yeah. And I'm just translating that into my own story because with Oingo Boingo, I was at the point where, you know, when you're a writer, singer for a band, you know, you are definitely the king of your own little mini world. Yeah. And at that point, I wanted out. 
I didn't want to be in a band anymore. I mean, I loved the guys and everything, but for the reasons I was telling you, I just, I didn't feel like I was meant to be in a band. I didn't know how to get out because here I had this now successful film career. And yeah. if I just bailed, it would forever seem like I abandoned them for something more lucrative. And I just couldn't bear that. So for about seven years, I kept saying, you know, I think this is it. I think this is getting it. I think I might be done. And uh, nobody ever believed me, but I kept saying it. Mm -hmm. So when Nightmare came along, I kind of wrote the songs, the, the character of Jack Skellington from someone who is revered mm -hmm. in the world that the small, tiny bubble of a world that he lives in, but he wants something else. He doesn't know what it is, but he wants something else. And that really was me in this period. So I related to Jack very personally. And then as I recorded sure. the 10 songs with Tim, uh, there was a point where, I, you know, initially I didn't know if I would be singing them or not, but as I got deeper into the demos, you know, we, we did this one night, Tim and I, where we went into a studio and we put, because I had like little demo tracks that I'd done in the garage. At that point, I was uh, living at my girlfriend's house because my house was being renovated. And I made a little studio in her garage. And that was where I did all the songs for Nightmare. And uh, we went into a recording studio to get better vocals for uh, Henry to work with. And we recorded essentially all the songs in one night, but this time with a better microphone and that kind of stuff. After I came out of that, I was like, uh, Tim, you know, in regards to Jack and singing us, like I, I was slowly reaching a point where if he'd have said, oh, yeah, I want it for this singer to do the part, that singer would have had to like watch out for his life because he just would have had a high likelihood of a piano falling on his head out of a window or, you know, some kind of terrible accident because um, I probably would have killed him and then gone, well, that is really a shame about that. Um, you know, I'm here if you want me. Okay, well, actually, no, we're going to turn over to this singer now. Go, okay. <laughs> and then after the next terrible accident, yeah. well, Tim, I'm still here. <laughs> but fortunately, he uh, he didn't do that. He said, yeah, yeah, Danny, don't worry. You're, you're, you'll be doing the songs. And because uh, I really now felt this kinship in the songs to Jack. And I just couldn't bear the thought of somebody else singing. Yeah. So do you feel like you were most, is that the, the movie where you feel like you were most personally connected to the score? Yeah. To the music? I, I definitely feel like I was the most, it was the most personal film. And so that also led now in hindsight, which is always easy, the foundation for why we have the split up because I was also probably the most touchy and vulnerable and uh, volatile yeah. about the part. Absolutely. Yeah, and so uh, the ground that the makes, groundwork that makes was there a lot of for uh, for for a meltdown for something to happen. Yeah. So, in in your case, how do you keep from putting too much of yourself into something and making sure that you are really representing the mood of the character or the film in the moment? Or do you get your kicks by other things? It, it's there's no easy way to answer that. You know, there really when it came down to Batman, for example, I knew it was me in there doing that thing. And when they wanted me to co-score with Prince at a certain point, I had to say, no, I'm leaving the project. And as much as I loved Prince's music, I wasn't going to co-write a score with him um, because I already knew what the score was. And I wasn't going to make it into a pop score or a rock score or a different kind of score. For a different kind of film, 
I said, God, collaborating with Prince on a score would be the best experience of my life, yeah. but not on this one. On this one, I know what it is. So even though it wasn't like down to the personal emotions of a character, I certainly didn't relate sure. to Batman and go, <laughs> that's because, you know, I, I'm Batman. But still musically, it was me in there. And I had to keep that alive to the point of being willi- willing to walk away from it. That score is interesting that you that you say you knew what it was because that to me is a dark good guy. He's like kind of a villainous good guy, and the type of music to portray that sort of person feels like it would have been an interesting thing to try to come up with that concept for at that time. Well, the beauty of it in that time is that there was no template to follow at all. Yeah, uh, for superhero films, we had Superman. Yep, and that was pretty much it. And uh, we pretty much resolved that, no, we're, we don't want this to sound like John Williams and Superman. Yep. We need a different sound. But there was no template to turn to as a model for a dark anti-hero. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, really, that was the fun of doing all of Tim's early films. Pee-wee, Beetlejuice, Batman, Nightmare, Edward Scissorhands. There was no template for any of these. No temp music that yeah. fit in with the film. Yeah, yeah. And now, in hindsight, it's like, oh my God, what a luxury to have a, sure. a movie with like no temp and uh, no, it's not modeled after anything. Mm-hmm. So it, I didn't realize how lucky I was at the time, how rare yeah. that, that was. Um, but that was the case. Yeah, there was no template for, for that. Yeah. So there's been different styles of film scoring throughout time. And actually not that many years of history considering how long music in general has existed, but music for film, obviously, because films are, I guess, fairly recent in the human development. But Yeah, I mean, we're at about 90 years now, roughly. Yeah. So you have the classical background, Rosha, Krongel, Waxman, John Williams being maybe probably the most popular in the modern era. And then Maybe, I I mean, it felt like there was this era where there was a different type of film composer that emerged with you being from Oingo Boingo, James Newton Howard from Elton John's band, Hans Zimmer coming in from the Buggles, like people that are coming in from bands that don't necessarily have the traditional background or the traditional history of classical composer or legit in the term of how musicians call classical music legit whatever but as far as coming from a pop music rock music background and now in the modern era there's you know Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor um, and they worked with John Batiste who's a good friend on soul you know there's there's more people uh, Mika Levy people that are starting to use things that are very different than your traditional classical film score which is cool to see. Yet there still is the, the the kind of classic sort of thing. Because we're kind of in the last, I don't know, 20, to me, 20, 30 years of, of diving into a new direction of, of sound to cinema, where do you see it going in the next 10, 15 years? Well, I think it's always going to be moving forward and backwards at the same time. It's going to be jutting around. You know, you got to remember all the way back in the 90s, there was already this like, oh, we want to contemporize the sounds and start using electric guitars more. And I remember coming on to uh, Mission Impossible with Brian De Palma and uh, the score had all this electric guitar 
And it's funny that even in the mid-90s, the electric guitar sounded dated to me. Mm. So it's like, in a way, there's new, and then at the same time, there's nothing new. You're recycling back and then moving forward and then moving sideways and then coming back again. And then there'll be suddenly this movement of like, uh, oh, you know, for everything wants to be more electronic and synthesized based now because of a certain score. So we want our action movies to feel that way. And then Avengers comes out, which is a really in-your-face traditional yeah. orchestral score. And then it's like, no, not so. <laughs> They're all, and the answer is there is no answer. Mm -hmm. They all work in different ways. And uh, my own personal view is that there's nothing that is right or wrong. Um, there's just a lot of different ways to approach it. But audiences are very forgiving. So, you know, you can write a really dense, complicated orchestral piece for a movie that no one would ever, these, this audience would never listen to on their own. Sure. But in the movie, they're very forgiving. They don't think about it as, oh, it's a full-fledged orchestral piece or it's all electronic with a lot of percussion. It just works for them in a subliminal way that they're unaware of. So you've got uh, a lot of people coming out of pop influences, but the, out of those influences, you've got all kinds of mixed influences. James Newton Howard is a fantastic, beautiful classical piano player. So he's got like deep chops. Yeah. Um, you know, Howard Shore came out of being a band leader on Saturday Night Live, but he also had like really strong classical chops mm -hmm. uh, under his belt. Myself and Hans Zimmer, much less so coming out of rock bands. And Randy Newman would be a great example of yeah. that coming out of being a pop artist, but then diving right into this really deep, soulful orchestral music. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's like you can hear it in Randy's music, but you just didn't know that he had that level of depth behind him. Mm. Trent, I'm more proud of than just about anybody because uh, for years and years, uh, you know, working on scores and a director might say, oh, could we get that Nine Inch Nails sound, you know, that Trent Reznor <laughs> sound? And I go, no, <laughs> I'm not doing that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you want that, you know, you got to go to Trent. It's like, I'm just not going to try to try to do that in this film. Yeah. And then finally, Trent jumps into film scores, but doesn't do that. Yeah. You know, he's smart enough to go, no, I'm not going to give them what they think they're going to get. And he does these really beautiful, melodic, piano-driven, often mm -hmm. scores that are really nuanced and have lots of color and depth. And right from the beginning of Trent's work, I was like, damn, you know, he's really embracing it. Yeah. You know, he's really getting into it and embracing it the right way. Because there's a as a pop artist, there's the right way and the wrong way. The wrong way is I've been doing this pop music and I'm going to do kind of pop scores because that's what I am. And sometimes like I'm hearing a piece of film music and I can almost hear the verse and the chorus and the bridge. Yeah. <laughs> and go, no, that's not that's not what this is about. It's not a song. Yeah. Don't write it like a fucking song. You know, the first thing I came into orchestral music for film was like forget everything I've ever learned as a songwriter. Just get rid of it. Wipe it out of your head. That's not how you're going to do this. Yeah. You're going to turn to Bernard Herrmann and Korngold and Nino Rota and Ennio Morricone and the people you love, and that's who you're going to turn to for your influences. Yeah. Not all the pop artists that you've grown up on. Sure. And so the good ones that come from bands, um, you know, like Trent, and, you know, they're, they're not going to give them what everybody's expecting out of their previous work mm -hmm. which i hope certainly when i started scoring that people weren't just hearing oingo boingo and certainly god knows you know when you heard uh social network you weren't hearing nine inch nails yeah exactly and that's really 
to transcredit because, you know, he so deeply established a sound and a tone that he really owned. Yeah. And it would have just been a very easy way for him to go. Yeah. And with a very successful career. So um, you can really hear, uh, even if somebody has a rock or a pop background, how they're approaching film scoring. They're either getting deep into it or not. Mika Levy is another great one, you know, but Mika Levy sits on the more avant-garde side of of rock and pop and electronic music. And she's like really inventive in a million levels also. And she takes it into film. And like, so for me, hearing Mika's music, I'm expecting something unexpected. Mm. Yeah. You know, I don't know what Mika's going to do, but it could be just about anything. Because, you know, her background is so interesting and varied all over the place. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Everybody's different on that level, but there is no right or wrong way to score a film. My next score that I start on is probably going to be half orchestra and half electronic. And uh, I'm good with that. You know, yeah. it's like if it was all electronic, I'd be good with that. Mm-hmm. I love taking on little films, you know, like, the, you know, the ones I've done in the last couple of years for Gus Van Zandt, uh, now two years ago, don't worry, far, you know, he won't get far on foot or for James Ponsolt end of the tour. I love doing those films. And they had a budget for like five musicians. And it's like, okay, I don't get an orchestra. I don't care. It's yeah. fine. Sure. You know, it's like, I'll do it. I'll do it five. That's our budget five. I'm, I'm happy with five. Yeah. So there's just a million ways to do it. And none of them are right. None of them are wrong. It's like whatever works, works. Knowing that there's not necessarily a right or wrong in many cases, and knowing that from what you said that you have to kind of throw away any of your past knowledge of just straight up songwriting because it's a very different thing. There's going to be a lot of young people, well, not even necessarily young, just people who have been in bands who want to start putting music to film. Yeah. Oh, I know. Look, I, I've been approached by yeah. guys in bands for years about like, I want to get into film scoring. I go, do you? Oh, really? Yeah, like, tell me how you approach it, and I'll describe a typical day in my life, and they'll quickly go, oh, fuck that. <laughs> it's like, I don't want to do that. Mm. I'll get somebody else to do that part. You know, and they, a lot of people come out of bands thinking, it's like being in a band. You come up with a tune, and uh, then you take that tune, and you know, you work it out with some guys or with a group, and, um, and they're expecting me to say, no, I write a tune, and then I bring in other people to take that tune and turn it into a score. And then when I describe my 14, 15, 16-hour day to them, it, yeah. it suddenly seems far less appealing because I always say it the same way. I said, coming up with the tune, coming up with the theme, that's only mm-hmm. the first part of doing a score. What you do with it is really where you develop your own style. It's like how you take a theme, how you do variations, how you do motifs, how you explore where they go in many levels really the orchestration, the arrangement of it is a big part of the composition. So, and then they'll go, but you're using orchestrator. And it's true, I do. But it's this confusing level of where is an arrangement and where is an orchestrator and what are the two? Because the those yeah. terms get very, very confused. But if you look at it on a pop level, you've got um, a songwriter writing a song. Now you've got George Martin coming in and doing an arrangement or you've got Nelson Riddle with Frank Sinatra doing this arrangement of the Frank Sinatra song and adding adding all these parts and mm-hmm. stuff. Well, that becomes a huge part of what makes it work for you. If you listen to the Sinatra tune, you're hearing this beautiful arrangement done by Nelson Riddle or other arrangers. And then there's another level of what you can call an orchestration. Well, 
sometimes arrangement and orchestration are exactly the same things. And in the film world, you still have to do the entire arrangement. You have to block out the whole piece. Now, you still may use an orchestrator to help you get the finished work into written form onto the stage in front of uh, 90 musicians. But if you don't do the work in taking this bit that you've written and stretching it out and making it work for this whole seven-minute cue, it, it doesn't work to say, I've written the first 30 seconds yeah. of it. You do the <laughs> next six and a half yeah. minutes. You didn't write the cue. You know, It's like somebody else is doing an arrangement based on your theme. Okay, that's fine. That's legitimate. But you've you got to recognize the fact that it's not your style that's necessarily yeah. going into that piece of music. It's the arranger's style in the same way that Nelson Riddle or George Martin really put their imprint on the music of Sinatra and the Beatles. So it's a very complicated yeah. thing, but you got to do the work. And it's a really heavy job doing a film score. And so some rock artists or pop artists, their game, i.e., the, you know, the names we've talked about, and some are just like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> That's like just too much effort, too much work. I don't want to do it. And I understand that. And, um, you know, there are people out there who definitely just get the thing launched and then let others take it to fruition. And, you know, whatever. That's fine, too. But to me, the, the worth of a composer is what you do with that sound, what you do with that thing that you've created that gives it your own personality. Yeah. In the film composing world, judging off what you said, do you think ambition and hard work is more valuable than talent in that case? No, you you got to have both. Without talent, well, you can be incredibly successful uh, without being necessarily that talented. I mean, there's different kinds of talent. Some sure. people... Some composers have a talent just for putting together a really great, tight organization yeah. and, and getting things done really well and on time. But, you know, their music may sound kind of generic. Like, it, it works. There's nothing wrong with it, but there's nothing about it that tells you that it's uniquely theirs. And then if you just have talent but don't have the discipline, you know, you're likely to crash and burn early in your career. Because you'll come up with these great ideas, but you just don't have the discipline to see it through. So I think every really good and enduring film composer has a combination of talent that be, they've developed something that's uniquely their own style, but also has a tremendous amount of discipline. And to me, almost to the level of being masochism, because it can be a real punishing job. Yeah. Uh, working on a tough film where you're, you're killing yourself on these cues and then they're being previewed and then totally re-edited and, and it's like totally mangled and you have to go back in there. And I can't tell you how many times I've taken apart a four and a half minute cue and they've re-edited a minute of it, but I end up having to write, rewrite three minutes of it because what, what I had to rewrite no longer works with what came before and what after it and end up rewriting yeah. the whole thing. And it's just part of the thing. It's nobody's fault. It's just mm -hmm. part of filmmaking. Yeah. And, you know, when you're a film composer, you have to be able to deal with that shit. Yeah. So as a guitar player and as a musician, we try to find and define our voice and our sound in a certain way, who we are as a character, as a person on our instrument. How would you describe and how, how did you find your sound as a film composer? Like, how do you define your sound? If somebody's just saying, what is your, what, what identifies you in a film score? I don't know what makes my style my style, 
I have no idea. To me, I think what served me, what frustrated me being in a band is that I wanted to be in a different band every year or every other year. You know, there, there was just no way to satisfy me uh, because I would just wake up one morning the next year. I want to be in a different band. I want to be in a different kind of band. I want to be in a different sound. And that doesn't work well with an audience, you know, when you're in a band. Unless you're David Bowie or a few artists that have had like these credible careers of constantly reinventing themselves. Audience wants to hear what it is that made them fall in love with you, which totally makes sense. But it was difficult for me because I always saw myself as over the years, I began to see myself more and more as a chameleon. And what was frustrating for me being in a band worked to my advantage as a film composer, because as a film composer, I can go from heavy to light to quirky to stupid to romantic to heartfelt. You know, it's like you're able to just switch, 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 switch. And that's what I thrive on is like switching it up, switching it up, switching it up. So my greatest pleasure is when I finish a score and the credits are at the end and somebody calls me and goes, oh my God, I just saw this film and I saw your name at the end. I had no idea that was you. For me, that's a yes moment because <laughs> I know that, you know, obviously there are certain things I do, I can keep recycling it. And when you've done 100, 110, 120 scores, you know, you can't come up with a new style for every time you do a score. There's a certain point where you're repeating yourself or certain parts of yourself, yet you want to reinvent yourself. Uh, I do. So it's kind of a combination of doing things where it's like, okay, I know I'm doing something that I do pretty well and, and everybody will be happy with it, but where in here can I do something different? Where in here can I do mm. something that I haven't done before? And that's where I started branching off into classical music you know, in the last 10 years because I realized at a certain point that I would go insane unless I freed myself of image and I could just really cut loose. And so these classical pieces really became like my steam valve, yeah, uh, which just let off a lot of pressure and steam. And then I'd be able to get back to my film work and, and say, okay, I'm okay now. I'm okay now. Because it doesn't work for you as a film composer if you're constantly trying to force a kind mm. of music that isn't what they want, yeah, isn't what the film wants. You know, it's like, I want to write a different kind of music, but that may not be what suits the film. And you can't force it. You know, it either does or it doesn't. And therefore, you know, doing these commissions, I can just let loose completely. I'm not, there's no expectations of me coming up with any particular thing and I can go anywhere my imagination lets me. Yeah. And I could really just write. So uh, that's ultimately the balance that I found works for me. So I really decided after I took on my violin concerto, whatever, five years ago, because I started about 14 years ago doing or commissions, but five years, four or five years ago with the violin concerto, I said, I have to do one of these every year. I have to do one commission every year for as long as I'm writing. And so far I'm staying on that schedule. I have a, a percussion quartet coming out in a few months that I did uh, at the end of last year for 2020. And I'm on a cello concerto right now. That'll be for next year. And so, you know, I'm really trying hard to stay on this one new piece a year. Yeah. So somebody like you, who's at the risk of overflattering you, definitely one of the absolute top in your field, one of the most renowned in our age, in our time, and just somebody who's probably would, would definitely be on the first call list for so many things. Now, transfer that to de different things. There's session drummers. There's session guitar players. There's people who headline festivals. 
When you're somebody as busy and renowned as you are, again, sorry to overflatter you if I am. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> how do you know what to say yes to? Oh, well, that's just another really tough choice because, I mean, there are certain things that come along where you go, oh, wow, there's, gonna, there's a, something I could really dig into and has so much potential, but you never know what it's going to be. Um, it's very rare that I come onto a film and I actually get to see the film. It does happen. You know, we're, um, I'm coming in late in the process and I can actually see the film and go, oh, yeah, I could do a good score to this. Usually it's early on. And I can only tell you this. I've done some really bad films. No composer, I mean, no director sets out to make a bad film. <laughs> of course. Every film, no matter how bad it ends up, starts out with the intention of doing something good. And so you end up in the beginning thinking, I believe that, you know, he's going to come up with something, he or she is going to come up with something real here. And when they don't, it just makes the job that much harder. And if they do, it just makes the job that much more easy and challenging. But you're taking your chances and throwing the dice. Sometimes a movie seems like, okay, this isn't the most challenging, but it'll be fun and I'll do it. And it's going to pay the bills and I'm happy to have it, you know, because yeah. it's an art, but it's also a craft and you have to, you know, you have to keep working that craft. Yeah. And sometimes something comes along where it's go, oh, you know, this isn't going to pay me a dollar. In fact, I have a dozen films I've done for a dollar, but it's going to be a real interesting thing to work on. And you just kind of mix it up. You just never know. So it's just a combination of things. And ultimately, sometimes I go on the fact that I meet a director and I just like the director. Yeah. And I don't know what the film's going to be, but I like the director and I just want to help the director. I want to be there for him or her. And sometimes, you know, that ends up being a wise choice. And sometimes in the end, that just being a horrible choice. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's just part of the game. It's just like you, you, you take a chance on people. Yeah. I love that. Well, to close out, I because we're a podcast for guitar players, I want to I want to ask a question that some people have told me to ask you from the guitar. Okay, cuz you know, that's my background too. Well, I know that also cuz you said you had Max effects, so you're talking gear. I liked that. We we had 10 seconds of gear talk, which, you know, that I think that's plenty, but <laughs> there are a lot of guitar players who want to get into playing on film scores and playing in Right. These sort of situations, and they don't necessarily know how to get the door opened for that, or even necessarily the skill set that they need mm -hmm. when they do get the call. So, can you talk about those two things? Yeah. Yeah. That's a tough one. Yeah. It's, it's hard to say. You know, I do all the electrical, electric guitar playing in all of my scores just because I'm a bad guitar player that's proud of his bad guitar playing. And generally speaking, in my scores, if you hear a guitar, it's one of two levels. It's either really precise acoustic guitar playing, of which I just, I'm not even going to try to do it because I'm a very imprecise player on acoustic. And I've been working for years with a player named George Deering. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just love George. You know, he could do absolutely anything on any stringed instrument. But then when it comes to the electric stuff... <laughs> It's usually like, I want it to sound bad. It is what it is. I want it to sound feedback. I, you know, I'm looking for noise. I'm looking for tone. Ah. And that's something I don't know how to ask somebody to do. So I learned over the years that I might bring in a really good guitarist. And, and I've worked with some very good guitarists on and, and films and had good experiences. But it's hard to explain 
And over time, I just kind of started to go, you know what? I'm just going to like get the sounds myself because I plug into my axe and, um, you know, go into right in the digital performer. And if I mess with it enough, it's like, okay, there it is. There's my tone. There's my sweet tone. It's ringing and it's holding and it's doing what I want it to do. And it sounds just as bad and nasty. And uh, if I take my time doing a solo, I can do a solo. But what to tell a player trying to get in, I think what's needed from a guitar player in a film score is so many different things. So sometimes it's just solid power chord playing. And if you're really good at that, you know, it'll be called on. Uh, From my own perspective, I would say try to diversify your sonic palette because really the the power chords is really the corny part. You know, that's something that I won't do unless the film is calling for something real corny, old school, like a power chord thing. And often if I'm doing that, it's almost more as a gag than a than for real but the stuff i'm if i'm with an electric guitarist and looking for something and say play me something that doesn't sound like a guitar play me something that sounds like a screaming banshee play me something that sounds like a whale that's like in distress um yeah you know I'm, i want to hear tones so i would say evolve that palette so you can give a landscape with your guitar and then certainly if you have if you're looking for the acoustic side of things then it's just like develop your ear it's all about your ear i mean the thing i love about george is you know if i have a chord chart he pays attention to it but his ear is so good that he'll go oh no that's wrong oh yeah no that's you're right that's that's not a c sharp seventh that's a and uh he'll hear it go by yeah and he'll hear what it's supposed to be um if there's a mistake in the music he'll just fix it in two seconds and and as a composer, it's like, oh, my God, it's so great having somebody with such a good ear. In fact, if I, if I come up with a new part for uh, him yeah. um, and there's no music, it doesn't matter. He'll listen to it once. He makes his own notation really quick and he's got it nailed. So for that level of playing, your ear really has a lot, says a lot, does a lot, brings a lot to the party. If you're an electric player, uh, you want to be precise if need be. You want to be able to read a part if need be. But you might be working with somebody more like me, and it's not going to be any written parts. It's just, I want to hear a, la- a soundscape. I want to hear something, you know, I, I could be using a synthesizer, but I'll, let's try doing it with a guitar. Yeah. And give me something really nasty. And it may be that you're actually asked to play dead-on power chords and follow a chord chart and, you know, do it in the more traditional sense. Yeah. Even though you won't necessarily hear that in my score, a lot of scores you do. So... There are three different areas, four different areas that all lend themselves to film. And obviously, the more you develop some part of it where you're, you can really express yourself well and make yourself stand out, that that's what you should focus on. That's awesome. Well, Danny, thank you so much for spending some time with us. It really means a lot. And it's fun to hear some of your story and your background and what you do. I, I love what you do, what you bring to films and even just the music on its own holds up, which is awesome. That's really fun. And I appreciate you being on the podcast today. Oh, my pleasure. It was really fun. And I love making noise with guitars still. So, uh, you know, it's like, it'll always be one of the most fun parts of doing a score is if I get to like put my guitar on, make noise. I like that. All right. I'm looking forward to hearing the next one and really looking forward to hearing your new album. Thanks. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. That was great. 
Danny Elfman. You know, I'm I'm very happy that he made himself vulnerable telling some of those stories about those characters, those movies, those projects, how he was intimately invested in them and how sometimes we get more invested in others. And that's sometimes where I feel like there's so much of myself in this project that if we let go of some of that or let that be expressed by someone else, that it in some ways would hurt us. So I think it was cool that he was able to explain some of that and talk about some of his different things in his career. So cool. Thank you all so much for joining. We'll be around next week. We'll see you then. Peace!